The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter Moonbase custodians. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. It's 90 degrees out, and there's a Goran trying to get into our house. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 12, District Geek, and we'll be talking with Star Trek writer and pop culture guru Kevin Dilmore. But first, we want to tip our caps to ourselves for finishing our first year of podcasts. Yes, and give a shout-out to the Chronic Rift Network for inviting us aboard. It's been quite a fun year. And of course, none of this would be possible without our listeners. So thanks, everyone, for listening to us and the other shows on the network. Keep those downloads going. Yes, please do. And now, let's bring on our guest. Good morning, Mr. Kevin Dilmore. How are you? Um, good morning. I'm well, thanks. And, uh, and I'm assuming the two of you are well? We are indeed. Yeah. Getting ready for school? I am getting ready for a camping trip. Ah. Much okay. more fun. I would be happy to try camping if I didn't have to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> outside doesn't work for me. <laughs> well, let's get started, shall we? Sure. Uh, when did you become a geek and what turned you? <laughs> well, this is cool. I never thought about it. I mean, now, of course, some of these stories are apocryphal um, because I don't have good uh, uh, you know, recollection. I was reading when I was two. And, um, you know, it's, I mean, that's what happens when your parents send you to uh, um, Xavier's school. Um, but uh, uh, no, my mother wanted to be a teacher and um, uh, did not. And but she taught me how to read when I was quite young. So I was reading and I was watching TV and apparently understanding and emulating TV that I watched. Um, so I would have been uh, two in uh, 1966 which is the start of Star Trek series. I have no recollection. My mother has no recollection of my ever sitting in front of an episode in its first original broadcast. So mm-hmm. I can't do that. But I do remember watching Batman. And, and that started in 1966 as well. Um, and then the uh, Hanna-Barbera uh, superhero cartoons, which were around the same era, um, Johnny Quest, Space Ghost, Birdman, Galaxy Trio, Herculoids, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the filmation, um, a DC Comics, uh, uh, cartoon, Superman, Aquaman, Adventure Hour, that kind of stuff. I was ve- So I was very caught up in um, space and superheroics when I was a kid. Um, uh, the uh, Star Trek animated cartoons, um, as opposed to non-animated cartoons, um, <laughs> came out in 1973 and I was nine. Somebody said once that uh, the golden age of science fiction is 13, um, which means whatever you're into when you're 13 is going to be a lifelong passion. Um, and uh, I had I was sitting in the theater to watch Star Wars for my second time on my 13th birthday. So I think that I've always had a uh, an affinity for imaginative storytelling, whether it's a superhero or uh, science fiction, and I guess that would uh, qualify me um, as a, a geek. And a lifelong geek. So far, you know, I haven't broken up with it yet. Since you got such an early start, as you entered school and went through school, like in, say, elementary, 
Mm -hmm. Did you have friends that were also geeks? Were they anywhere near as geeky as you? Or were you kind of the stereotypical lone geek that... uh... Like me. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you have plenty of friends. She has plenty of friends, but they're not geek friends. No. That's a good so, question. Um, wow, you guys, this is this is a great conversation. I don't remember specific. I certainly wasn't alienated in school. I grew up mm-hmm. in a small town, and um, and you know, there's like six thousand people in my hometown. There were 113 in my graduating class. I still um, talk to, or at least text somebody somewhere from my class every day. We're very very tight, and um, and after after 35 years, I think it's 35. I'm trying to do the math. Uh, 30, it's too early for math. I know, sorry, but but no, I mean, I remember, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't singled out for anything. The first time I really remember, um, having friends that we were drawn together because of you know what you would call geek interests, and see, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm going to change the classification a little bit because to me, sure, geek geek. I think Whedon said it lately um, that uh, um, it just, or maybe it was Simon Pegg. I don't know. I mean, you grab these quotes, you throw them on the internet that it's just kind of like this, uh, you know, defined as, as a willingness to uh, um, kind of uh, love openly uh, Mm -hmm. anything. I mean, just, you know, I have a passion for it and I'm excited about it and I don't mind putting on t-shirts or telling people about it or going to midnight movies or, um, you know, or whatever, you know, I mean, I was a kid that would, you know, I mean, I remember that uh, Fair Week. Fair Week was a humongous deal um, for uh, us in in, uh, in a rural town. And, uh, you know, Friday nights were always, you know, the big night of Fair Week because it was demo derby. It was, you know, I mean, just it was like – and I remember one time I – you know, my friends were baffled. I stayed home on Friday night because um, – <laughs> They NBC was airing the uh, on Friday night the two hour um, Flash Gordon filmation movie. Okay, um, they made a they made a cartoon series mm-hmm. on Saturday mornings, but they had a two hour um, uh, uh, movie for it, and then it aired only once. Oddly, of course, I would never have known that at the time, but I stayed home because I wanted to edit commercials out of it <laughs> while I was watching it on yeah. my on my VHS. Well, my parents bought me a VHS for my uh, graduation. They, well, they say it was for my graduation present from high school, and which was something because this was 1982 and it was a thousand dollars. Yep. Um, and uh, it was a top load, the whole thing. Of course, it didn't go with me to college, so it doesn't count that it was a graduation. <laughs> but I stayed home to to record this, and according to Andy Mangles, who wrote the uh, um, the this book on filmation, yeah. when I gave him a copy of that movie that I had burned over to DVD not but a year or two ago, it was the only copy he'd ever seen. Wow. I know. Just because I was sloppy and decided I wanted to stay home and tape it, and it meant something to me. So, I, you know, but... Then again, it was one of those things where, like, if if any if there was an award for most likely to do something geeky with his life, I'm sure I would have got it back in 1982. And but nobody bugged me about it. Yeah. I um, Friday night was the night that I hung out with my high school friends where we went to football games or basketball games or this and that. Saturday night was D and D, and I hung out with a whole group of friends that we played Dungeons and Dragons and uh, or. Uh, or, or Monopoly or Risk or whatever it was. It was basically game night. And uh, those two groups, I mean, nobody smacked me for hanging out with the other group. I just had just 
very social but passionate interests and that kind of stuff. I came from a small town, even smaller than yours. I only had about oh, yeah? 80, 80 kids in my graduating class. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I do keep in touch with some of them still, like yourself. And it, it was kind of similar that I had two groups, two main groups of friends. There was the group that I played uh, the, the board games with, and then there were the other guys that I hung out with. And they didn't really overlap that much. Yeah, but that, mine I, overlapped by one. There yeah, was one friend who kind of ran in both circles. Mm. And uh, and yeah, I never really, I don't recall that I was ever really teased too much specifically about being a geek. But I was definitely the geekiest kid. And yeah. uh, and the, you know, there were times that I felt compelled to kind of downplay it. I didn't necessarily go to school and start talking to all my friends about some episode of something I'd watched, but, uh, so, I do. And, I'm like, uh, you guys are going to sit there and listen to me. Cause I let you talk about gossip girls. So just like stay, oh, but that's, but that's what they're, but that's what they're geeky about is gossip girls. That was where my thing was, is that, I mean, I had teachers asking me about movies, um, and not just geeky movies, but just movies in general. Yeah. Um, we had one theater in our town. It was a single screen. And uh, I went to church with the manager, and my mom had this deal with the manager that if they had seen an R-rated movie and they were cool with it, they didn't need to go with me, and they were fine. I mean, she, my mom would call the manager and say, hey, um, Kevin's okay to go see Apocalypse Now. And he was like, okay. And I'd go in. Because you know, wow. under seventeen, not have been without you know, without parental you know permission or whatever or yeah. supervision. Yeah. If she called, it's like, hey, Richard, Kevin's going to come down and see you know whatever. So I was seeing R-rated movies in theaters when I was 12, 13 years old because That's mom knew I could handle it, awesome. and so <laughs> teachers would ask me about movies. Um, I did Oscar predictions when I was in high school. Um, you know, just but. But it was just that gen- – so there's pop – it's it's really more of a pop culture that yeah. I've – that, you know, that uh, – uh, yes, I do like the, uh, um, you know, sci-fi stuff most of all. But it's just general – I mean, it's that's kind of where I went – where my geek came out. Yeah. Yeah, I agree that the term can be used in a broader sense. Um, we here at Generations Geek <laughs> tend to stay uh. – <laughs> tend to use it in, the, in that more focused – uh, f- for the specific genres, the sci-fi and stuff. But gotcha. yeah, I, I think that you can be a geek for just about anything. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it kind of expresses the, the, your level of commitment and, ex- and expressiveness of your fondness for whatever it is. So you I could be, exactly. you know, you can be a football geek, a NASCAR geek, mm-hmm. you know. And, because, and I mean, football was... geeks, I mean, sports people... And and this is something that that amuses me uh, in, in an ironic way, is there there is there's a certain stereotype of a of of a sort of jock kind of sports person that would really make fun of, say, people in Star Trek costumes. Uh huh. But then that same person will turn around and put on their jersey and paint their face. <laughs> to go to the game and run screaming down the field and it's like this is exactly the same thing it's just yeah. you know a, a a a deep uh love for something that you're going to express in this very uh outgoing way mm-hmm. and, and it's really the same thing 
Yeah, you're you're precisely right. I once I got a letter published in Time Magazine um, nice. for um, when uh, um, Generations came out, mm-hmm. and they had uh, Shatner and Patrick Stewart on the cover of Time. And I believe I have up. that magazine in my collection. I do too. And uh, so, but if you look a few weeks down the road, you'll see a letter in Time um, from me um, commenting on that issue. And but I was so upset that they uh, had cut the paragraph of the letter that I was most excited about, and I and I wrote exactly what you had said. It's like, you know, when somebody puts on a rainbow wig and no shirt in thirty degree weather, um, you know, they're a passionate fan. But when somebody puts on a a Klingon ridged brow and a uh, and a Starfleet uniform and goes to a convention, then then you know they're ridiculed. Yeah. And that was what I'm trying to remember what year uh, generations came out, but look where we are now. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, newscasts don't have credibility if they don't cover Comic-Con, yeah. um, you know, and, um, and so, and that's where we are now. When the nobody's... meek are inheriting the earth. <laughs> uh, yes. Meek slash geek. It's well, I mean, it's, and, and I think that that's, uh, that's technology because yeah. the people who, loved and imagined what technology could do through um, film, television, and literature, then, you know, went out to make technology do those things. And exactly. now people who are, you know, I mean, uh, you know, very, you know, financially secure based on those, um, you know, either making those revolutionary leaps or exploiting them, it's this circle of who inspires who. Um, you know, does imagination inspire technology, which inspires imagination? It just feeds itself. And now we're this club where, um, you know, all of a sudden we're kind of the cool kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I mean, we as in anybody who's a fan of this stuff. Uh, you know, and yeah. it's funny because, and now we've got this this weird undercurrent in fandom, two two things that I think are strange. Um, and, it, and, and Ellie, they both kind of relate to you um because there's this idea of um of girls and women uh, having their credibility uh, or motives questioned when they express their interest in geeky things yeah um you know there's 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 a group who's trying to say that you know that guess women do like this stuff and we're allowed to like it and then there's another group who's like but when we express ourselves by wearing an outfit you know, one that uh, that that might you know be a little revealing or a little exploitive. That doesn't mean that I'm looking for your hands all over me, and you know, and that's and the and it, both of those things I think are defensive reactions that we as geeks have had for generations. And said, so, you know, I mean, we're just waiting for someone to give us a wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, it really pains me when I see some of this stuff going on that you mentioned you know we we spent so long being sort of on the outside and i mean even though i said that i wasn't really picked on that much in high school there were still times that i felt that that being on the outside thing felt that uh well i mean of course every sort of teenager goes through that in some way but i mean Specifically for my interests in science fiction or science, there were times that I felt on the outside. And then to see the group kind of turning on itself in these ways, you know, there, uh-huh. there, 
there there are at times there there's a uh, there's a mean spiritedness sometimes in fandom that I don't I don't know where it comes from, but you know sometimes you know we're often known for being very particular about our <laughs> you know shows or whatever, and so if they get something wrong in continuity or, you know, something like that. Or if you don't like the newest version or the new episode. Or uh, the, or JJ Trek. Or JJ Trek, people will, you know, start talking about it. And sometimes, or oftentimes, it'll cross the line from just legitimate personal preferences and film criticism into just becoming this, like, mean-spirited, non-stop yeah. rant. And... Sometimes that same thing gets focused on people in a way that really uh, dismays me. And, and it has driven me away from some uh, online forums mm -hmm. because it seems that people just trash on people so much. And yeah, then you I, I've experienced the same thing. I think that it's, it, is a, it is simply a... Base instinctual reflexive response in that as fandom grows, there's too many hamsters in the cage, and when there's too many hamsters in the cage, they start eating each other. And well, and it's, it's also like that defensive thing, almost like um, if if you've been a geek about like um, all the sci-fi stuff for like ever, and somebody who you've heard criticize it before suddenly becomes one then you kind of want to question them, like, are you really, though? And that's where it gets awkward and awful, because it's like, as far as I'm concerned, like, if you got introduced to Star Trek through the reboot but haven't necessarily watched the original series or whatever, you're still a fan. And I still, yeah. like, that's why I, that's part of the reason why I'm so happy about the reboot, because it's drawing in more fans, even if they're not mm -hmm. watching the original series. And it's like, but people will... Um, be kind of mean to them, like, you're not really a fan if you've only seen the reboot. It's like, well, oh. yeah, they are, though, because they took the time and they like to talk about it. You hit it. I mean, and part of it also is that, you know, there's this weird, all of a sudden, the people who have kind of kept them kept themselves very much defined themselves as, um, I'm a person, I am who I am because I like this. As individual works start to elevate in uh, in, in cultural popularity, um, uh, Twilight, Hunger Games, Game of Thrones, um, where everybody knows it, and all of a sudden, well, if you like this, then you like science fiction. Well, wait a second, no, I don't. I mean, Cormac McCarthy hates being called a science fiction writer, um, and uh, and I think that that one of the reasons why is because he he feels like that it's going to limit him, um, you know, in uh, in his public perception, mm -hmm. but. But it's, you know, I mean, all of a sudden you're at school and everyone's talking to you because they're like, well, I, I want to learn about Game of Thrones, um, you know, and, uh, and you know, I mean, he, he probably knows about it or she probably knows about it. And then you're like on this cusp of being, you know, the cool in the know kid because you've seen, you know, season one and you can tell them about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the captain of the swim team starts watching Game of Thrones and then everybody's talking to him. And you're like, what the hell? He's not a real geek. He shaves his body. Um, <laughs> But, uh, um, you know, that, that's kind of... <laughs> Here's a non-geeky uh, example of the same thing. So it just kind of shows it's this uh, human nature. Uh, we're we're uh, big Springsteen fans in this house. Mm -hmm. 
but going back decades ago, when Born in the USA came out, it was the biggest hit that he had. I mean, oh, you know, everyone was a Springsteen fan. Everyone was a Springsteen went. fan, and there was a big problem amongst Springsteen fans at that time doing the same thing. It's just like, well, if you're only listening to Born in the USA, you're not a Springsteen fan. Absolutely. I remember it. And so you see it's this kind of, you know, the, the tribal instinct. You know, like you said, you define yourself by a certain something. And it's like, I'm in this tribe. And then someone from outside suddenly starts saying they're in your tribe. And you, start, yep. and you question yep. their... Uh, you want you you know it's like you want to see their papers, <laughs> you, you know you want to make sure. I stand a pedigree. Yeah, and on the one hand, it's uh, understandable in 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 various ways, but on the other hand, it can turn really nasty yeah. and unfortunate because you start excluding people that. And then you, you become be what you hate. And then ex- yes. there you go. Chris Hardwick so, talked about that because he's awesome. It's a perfect example of the same thing happening in a way that other people lived through. I was wondering, when did you realize that you could take your geek skills or your you know, pop culture skills and perhaps do something professional with it? When did mm-hmm. you start getting jobs because of, of that? I, it was college. Um, you know, I mean, I, I never really thought about what I would, you know, that this would just be something that uh, I enjoyed but did nothing with. Mm-hmm. Um, in high school was when my, uh, when I was on the yearbook staff, my yearbook teacher was the one who said, you know, if you want to go to school to write, you can go to school to write. Um, and he believed in me in that way. So um, when I went to college, I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And um really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, as, as I got my film degree, I realized what I kind of liked was writing about film. And in uh, my, I was interviewed for the college newspaper about um, my being a comic reader and collector when um, somebody did an article in the 80s when comic book movies were kind of had a little bit of a bump, nothing like we're experiencing now. Yeah. Um, but there was, uh, and uh, there's also some attention to uh, uh, things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, you know, before they were, when they were simply in print. And I, and so I, I interviewed for that story um, and then uh, read the result and thought, oh, well, shoot, I could do this. I mean, I, I know enough about pop culture stuff. So I went into journalism school and then ended up the arts and entertainment reporter and the movie critic for the paper at the University of Kansas. And right. That I really liked, um, but when it came time to getting a job, um, I got a job at a Twilight Weekly, and um, there was no movie theaters, so there was no need for any uh, art and pop culture criticism, and I just became a straight-up journalist. It would have been in uh, 1998, a little bit before the opening of Star Trek The Experience. So I would have been 34, 35 years old before I made money from someone off of uh, anything that was uh, geeky mm-hmm. um, because that was the first time I sold a, a magazine article. Um, you know, so, so yeah, it was, just, it, it took a long time for me to realize, Hey, wait a second, maybe this is a knowledge base and a skill that I can leverage. So I really, as far as like being a 
professionally paid, you know, I mean, pop culture slash geeky guy. I've been doing it for less than 15 years. Then you got the, the Trek uh, communicator gig somewhere in there. Yes. That was really, that was the first magazine I'd ever sold a piece to. Okay. Because that's um, how we first interacted, I believe, yes. because you interviewed me. Strange New Worlds. Yeah. A, a number of our mutual friends, I met, I met Dayton through Strange New Worlds. Um, the, uh, you know, he won the first contest. Well, I mean, well, he was a winner of the yep. first contest and, um, and I interviewed everybody. Um, John Ordover sent me a list of all of the winners who were being published and he was in Kansas city. So I arranged to meet in person and that's how we met. And then, was, and the rest is history. And the rest is history. Now, um, now, had you written much, did you do any fiction writing or fan fiction before you met Dayton? Um, only in college. Um, okay. I, I took, uh, I took three, I took fiction writing one, two, and three, uh, at KU and fiction writing three. I took from James Gunn, who is wow. you know, one of the world's authorities. of science. Yeah. Um, he gave me an A. I mean, I wrote fiction nice. for Gunn, he gave me an A and, um, and that was, you know, I mean, the average person is not going to care, but it's, that is one of the proudest things I still yeah, uh, I you know I came up with four or five stories that semester that earned me an A in the class. That is great. Uh, yeah, was, I I really felt good about that. Um, I, I want to interject here for our yes. like three listeners who may not know Dayton. Dayton Ward is a, another Star Trek writer, and uh, Kevin and Dayton have written as a team on tons of uh, novels and stories and but such. Dayton and Dayton is much more prolific beyond me. I mean, you know, he's written sta standalone Star Trek novels. He's written standalone original fiction yes. novels. Um, so, uh, but yes, the majority of the majority of my fiction writing I have done with him. Yep. The majority of his fiction writing he has done without me. So just for <laughs> just for clarification's there. sake. And uh, well, and perhaps we should throw out some James Gunn titles too. Now, I'm off the top of my head. I can't remember. Uh, Immortals. Oh yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, um, I mean, that's the one that comes to mind immediately. I'm trying to think of a few. I read so many of his short stories. Um, in fact, I was reading um, before I even took uh, um, a class from him. I grew up in uh, Abilene, Kansas, which is the home of uh, um, President Eisenhower um, and uh, or Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces Eisenhower, whatever you want to call him. Mm -hmm. And so, consequently, having a presidential library in your hometown, you get. Um, uh, some neat opportunities. Professor Gunn came to speak once about 50 science fiction and, uh, you know, pulp origins and things like that. And I had uh, galaxy magazines from the fifties that I brought uh, to that and had him sign. Um, and that's Great. where we first met. He also, I mean, is, is known just as much for, or maybe even more now for his, um, knowledge and preservation of science fiction. His series yeah, yeah. of books called The Road to Science Fiction um, is um, it stands alone as a uh, reference for uh, the origins of what of this genre. And uh, his uh, knowledge and connectivity in the genre is unmatched. Um, it, it, I mean, and uh, uh, you know, thankfully, he is uh, you know still among us. So I had uh, written in college, so that would have been fall of 85, spring of 86, and fall of 86. Those were the three semesters I took it, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then did not write fiction again until I was offered an opportunity to pitch 
to Starfleet Corps of Engineers, oh. um, which would have been 13 years later. Um, and uh, I was able to, I pitched a story successfully. And uh, at that point, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. So I called Dayton and said, I am in real trouble <laughs> and I'm hoping you can bail me out. Um, he had um, sold uh, his three Strange New World stories and had sold and written his first um, Star Trek novel um, and uh, at that point. And so he was between projects and was willing to uh, jump in and uh, do this in tandem because I wouldn't have been able to do it by myself. Mm -hmm. And that would have been, it was the uh, sort of Klingon one, wasn't it? His first, uh, it, it's um, in uh, honor in something Yeah, in the name honor. of honor. Oh, in the God. name of honor. Yeah, it was funny because uh, when he sold that, it was actually kind of cool. Um, he told me, um, you know, the uh, some of the characters from the, from the original series that he was going to pull uh, and uh, and put in the book. And um, for his uh, little uh, congratulations um, on selling that, I was at a sci-fi convention and bought two um, bubblegum cards with the uh, characters that were signed by the actors and uh, and smacked them on a little plaque and, and gave those to them. Oh, so, great. So how about that? So what, what a thoughtful man. See, you, I was you, destined it, to work for Hallmark. Exactly. I want to uh, mention one of your solo works in the, uh, the Vanguard series. In the anthology, you did a story. I did. Um, it's called Hard News. Um, our, that was... The, the origins of that anthology are um, a little, this is going to sound awful, but it's a little money grab. Um, we were meeting at uh, Shore Leave and decided that uh, the sixth book in the Vanguard series was going to be its last. Um, we wanted to wrap it up because we were afraid that when we had built the plot of this, you know, kind of um, 23rd century more, you know, uh, political machination and, and technological unveiling uh, in this little known and little explored area of Federation of non-Federation space. We said, we're going to, you know, we're going to finish the last one. Mac's going to write the last one and we're going to be done. And CBS came back to us and said, no, <laughs> we, <laughs> we would like to, to do more. Um, and, uh, and then, so we said, well, what can we do? So we decided that we would use one book, to do a little flashback uh, within stories that had already been told and maybe take one story that could stand alone without being um, uh, a full-blown novel and, uh, and, and do that um, as part of this collection of novellas. And then somebody hit on the idea of what if each of us, including our editor, Marco Palmieri, who had not written fiction in more than, I can't remember now if it was 10 or 20 years at that point, um, we said all of us are going to take a story, and you know, and we're and we're going to, you know, do, do that as standalone authors. And it was really fun. It was it was really fun. Um, I agonized over the story a little bit, but uh, um, I picked uh, uh, Tim Pennington, the uh, uh, Federation News Service journalist that was kind of embedded in the Vanguard stories, and had uh, a really good time with him because I was able to kind of just draw on the idea of what it's like to be a newspaper reporter. Well, yeah, I really liked how you used your background in journalism to inform the story. And it was, I, I, I really enjoyed the story. But yeah, originally we were just going to wrap it up and that's when we hit on, uh, you know, well, we'll just make book six, the uh, collection of novellas, and then take the final book and make it two books. 
um, which no one's complained about. So I'm assuming that we we avoided what we wanted to avoid, which was not padding the story. Yeah, I th- I think they all stand well on their own. They don't uh, right. seem like filler or something. It- um, you know, the the project that we just had announced a couple of weeks ago. We are continuing the stories of some characters yeah. from that series. Um, Seekers is actually a lot of fun because um, we're definitely hearkening back to try to tell the stories and try to emulate the format of um, media tie-in writing that brought us all into the business in the first place. So. Yeah, I'm excited about that series. Thanks. It's you know it's the, the kind of retro feel that uh, that you're going for. I'm going to bring you in with another question. Yes, Ella's been abandoned. <laughs> You have a geeky daughter. What turned her? I will be the one to tell you, and she'll be the one to tell you that I, I'm. Uh, she's not quite there. She's like a fringe. She's on the fringe. She's very <laughs> much like me in the sense of um, that she's very open and passionate about the things that she likes. She has no shame in saying, I like this and I like that. And sometimes it'll come to bite her a little bit because um, of, of the age that she is. She's she's 19. She'll be 20 in December. And she was a big, full-blown embracer of uh, One Direction uh, <laughs> in college. And that was risky. You know, I mean, it was risky to like Star Trek in high school. You know, it's risky to like One Direction in college. Um and, I think it's uh, risky and, to like One Direction at all. Those fans scare me. They, well, <laughs> she, she was a big one, and uh, and but but the thing is that she's that her uh, her geek comes out in music. Uh, she's a music education major in college. Uh, very much would like to be a high school band director, but you know, with you know, talk about geek. Um, you know, the, I mean, the high school band kids band geek. take it yep. on the chin as much as uh, a, members of the AV club, yep, um, or the debate team or whatever. I was um, in the AV club for a while when I was nice, stereotypical, yep. There Ours wasn't people even have an AV club, and well, and yeah, I can't even, it wasn't really an AV club, it was a uh, there was there was some sort of class like one quarter or something. I mean, I'm an old guy, there was hardly any V any AV to be had (laughs) because we had a filmmaking class in in high school um, that uh, depended on our being able to obtain um, our own uh, super eight camera and footage. Yeah. So uh, we, yeah, we didn't have video was unheard of in high school for me. Um, The, uh, there was actually when I um, went to a, uh, um, my first newspaper job after I, co- I graduated college was in 1988, and I went to uh, um, the, the main high school that I covered because I was the education reporter. Um, was a school that was built in the 70s that was um, uh, an experimental, like they won a grand or something to wire the whole school for closed circuit TV, wow. and they had their um, they had a CCTV studio in the school, which at that point was being used for storage. <laughs> um, but uh, it was it, back in the 70s. For that these was guys, cutting it was edge. Cool. I mean, yeah. they have a, a, basically a vocational program for video production. Um, and uh, I'm sure that helped a lot. Um, but as far as Colleen goes, um, she, the first thing that she got kind of turned to was uh, the Beatles. Um, I'm a big Beatles fan, and uh, she became a big Beatles fan in elementary and middle school, and that kind of helped broaden her out into music. As far as she's not a uh, comics reader, but she appreciates comics. She's mm-hmm. not that big on comic book movies, but she's very big into pop culture and music. Um, she is a fan of the 2009 Star Trek movie. 
Um, I know she saw Into Darkness. Um, I don't know that we've ever discussed it, uh, either one of us. I mean, with I mean, with I don't. We have not discussed it with each other. I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but she counts herself as a Star Trek fan, and um, despite the fact that uh, um, there was a small you know, cachet that she uh, um, uh, leveraged because she was able to tell people at school that, you know, her dad has, has written books that have been published. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like, oh, he has? What are they? Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite story of that um, was uh, when she was in uh, elementary school. And I think she would have been uh, fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. And um, she uh, had this uh, deal where the teacher said, you know, you'll get extra credit for a book report and you'll get extra, extra credit if you do story about the, uh, if you write something about the writer and you get an extra, extra, extra credit if you write a letter to the writer and get something <laughs> back. And so my daughter, you know, I mean, she's her father's daughter. Well, what if I brought the writer to class? <laughs> you know, oh, but you, just, you know, of course the teacher went, you know, just crazy. He thought that was an awesome idea. And so she goes back and says, Dad, I want to read one of your stories. It's like, okay. So at that point, time the only thing i had published that was mine um was uh a standalone short story i did for uh the star trek new frontier anthology called no limits mm-hmm. um and uh and so i gave that to her and i was like well, i don't know if you're gonna like it i don't know if it's gonna be but you're sure and so you know that 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 like we can have two weeks later um she, I was uh, at the uh, bus stop um, to pick her up after school, and her teacher was doing bus duty. And I said, uh, so how's your uh, little book report going? Uh, and the teacher said, well, actually, it's not going so good. She says, what do you mean? She says, well, Colleen doesn't have the heart to tell you that she doesn't like your story. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really? She says, yeah, she can't get through it. So I was like, <laughs> so I was like okay. So I... Um, Got her like a picture up. We were driving. I think we went to dinner or something. And I said, "Hey, uh, um, so tell me how you're doing on uh, reading my story." And and she said, "Well, you know, she kind of sat there. She would have been like nine or ten. And I said, "You know, there's something I've been really. It's been kind of bothering me, and I want to talk to you about it. But uh, I'm kind of worried that when you get down to doing your report about the writer, there's just not a whole lot of material about me out there. You can't really read a story about me." But I know you like Judy Bloom, and there's a ton of stuff out there about Judy Bloom. Maybe you ought to read one of her stories. Like, okay. And <laughs> finished the dinner with both hands. Yeah. So, excited. so you um, threw her a lifesaver. Yes, man. <laughs> threw her a life ring. We uh, have to talk a little bit about Hallmark ornaments. Sure. I'm sure that just about anyone who listens to this podcast is familiar with the annual Hallmark Star Trek ornaments. They wait, so. they wait excitedly to see what's going to come out. And so here we have Mr. Hallmark Star Trek ornament right here with us because well, you get just, you get to I'm influence. I'm I'm one of a team. I cannot take yeah. credit. I've been uh, you know I'm as a creative writer. I've been extended the opportunity to uh, uh, work with the team that develops the ornaments, and that's been a lot of fun. I mean, we start off with this idea. um, I mean, we sit down in a meeting, and we know we want to do a ship. We know we want to do a character. We know we want to do a scene. And so 
we just start throwing stuff out and seeing what sticks and yep. we've had some fun things happen and, and and start and actually the ornaments have grown beyond star trek to really embrace science fiction the very first ornament that hallmark ever did that, that at least as far as collectors say that steered away from its pop culture and christmas to forget it it's just pop culture yep. was the uss enterprise in 1991 um, they originally, when they said we wanted to do a Star Trek ornament for the 25th anniversary of the show, that you know they were a little skeptical. Original designs actually had garland around the primary hull <laughs> and Santa Claus popping out of the bridge. <laughs> that is a true story. And um, and the sculptor Lynn Norton, bless him, um, who is uh, still works um, as a uh, freelancer for Hallmark. He's retired from the, from the company said, we will kill the idea of not only Hallmark being a, a good vendor for Star Trek, but for pop culture. If we do this, we, mm -hmm. we need to do an ornament that is, that is straight up. Yeah. Now, if you look, um, at that ornament, it is not straight up. The primary hole is way too fat. The nacelles are way too uh, short. Um, it is not an accurate representation of the Enterprise, but it's a dang sight closer than Santa Claus popping out of the bridge. <laughs> so the next year they did the shuttlecraft in, in 92, and not only um, did they uh, keep it uh, um, in perfect scale, but they also brought in... Um, uh, Leonard Nimoy to record a voice yep. uh, on that ornament, and that, and then you know, it just the doors flew open, and and uh, Hallmark started doing a whole bunch of shuttlecraft uh, enterprise, yeah. shuttlecraft enterprise, happy holidays, something like <laughs> yeah. that. I've got that one. Yeah, well, I remember it's, um, hitting the it's, button. I, I think it's shuttlecraft enterprise, shuttlecraft enterprise, Spock here, happy holidays, live long and prosper. Yep, that's that's it. My favorites, <laughs> my the. Are the scenes that that you've Aren't been you? doing? Yeah. The uh, the trouble with Tribbles. <laughs> I like is that. I was just, there when they decided to drop Tribbles on his head. That is just an astonishing bit of engineering. Yeah, it's awesome that you can actually have the Tribbles falling out on his the, head. That is the most, great. The most complex part of that ornament, oddly enough, was finding a vendor that would um, that was able to uh, create a um, static free um treatment for styrofoam oh i see because the big because the big thing that was happening was that you know naturally especially because there's electricity involved yeah uh, static electricity would build up and clump the uh styrofoam tribbles that were dropping on kirk's head <laughs> so uh, they found a vendor that could treat it so that they would have a, a static a static free coating on the uh, on the little uh, foam uh, nuggets and there you go <laughs> and then i love the kirk and spock from amok time that's my favorite and you know that... it doesn't it doesn't have the action uh, the actual moving parts of the triple one but it's a it's a great sculpture and it's got the great music yeah. clip I always hit the button and then run around my room like a crazy person, like dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs> I have that on my phone, actually. Um, <laughs> the uh, um, and Dayton does too. But yeah, that was I. I mean, I very much credit the team effort on that. I will. I will take a little bit of credit for myself. That was the first guy to throw that out when they they wanted to do a mock time. They they knew they wanted to do the scene, but they didn't know what dialogue to do. And I said, don't do dialogue at all. Just do the music, and um, and 
but they had to say yes, and they had to be the ones to to get that approved and to pick out the right, um, you know, the right clip and match it up and things. Now, I will say that um, that that one has proven, I think, to be among our most popular mm -hmm. um, Star Trek ornaments in recent memory, um, which is why this year's arena ornament is so similar in uh, uh, in in that. It's it's a fight scene with Kirk and the Gorn, and it is just music and sound effects. It is not dialogue. Yeah, I'm so for the stores. Check that out. Uh, next year we're doing uh, Devil in the Dark with Spock and the Horda, but oh, there is dialogue because nice. you can't. That's an amazing episode. It's oh, it's going to be great because uh, you know you, you 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 will now be able to go to your Christmas tree and 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 press a button and hear what we all feel during the holidays. Pain! <laughs> so I'm very excited. I don't want to slight the team by any means because I respect that anything like this, especially when you're dealing with a franchise, there's got to be a group of people involved. Absolutely. But uh, were there any others that you felt you had particularly been able to contribute to, other than the ones that we've mentioned? They always they 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 are always happy to uh, um, invite me in and 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 let me throw out my ideas. Um, the, what I'm learning um, is that over the course, you know, at the beginning, I was like, oh, I've got you know, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this, and they'll say, yeah, that's cool, but it's not going to sell. Mm -hmm. And and so I really have learned how to anticipate what uh, the uh, consumers interested in. And um, and what's going and what and we get so much support from uh, from CBS as yeah. uh, as the licensor. Uh, John Van Sitters and Marion Cordry, um, you know, in particular, um, are uh, invaluable to uh, us being able to use them as sounding boards on saying, hey, you know what, I think this is good, but you guys might make a little bit more if you did this instead. Right. Um, so that's that's usually helpful. Well, actually, there's a couple coming up. Uh, in in coming years that um, that I know I had laid the groundwork for that uh, um, I can't talk about yet. Okay. Um, there's uh, I will take a little bit of credit for Adventure Time. Um, there was somebody we have an Adventure Time ornament coming out in October, mm -hmm. and I had uh, um, gone to them and said, based on what I'm seeing at Comic Con, based on what I know is happening with the cartoon, that that's a pop culture license that we ought to uh, do something yep. with. And I gave them, you know, I mean, here, are, you know, like here's a couple of ornament designs that I think are, you know, would would suit us well. And and this, and I gave them two, and they picked one of them. Uh, the only change they made was Jake Angel, the um, the sculptor, instead of just having um, instead of just having Finn's regular sword, he put the blood sword from the Dead Dungeon episode in, and I was just so geeked out when I saw that. I was like, I'm so glad that somebody, they, they put it in the hands of someone who um, you know, has an affinity and an understanding of the, of the cartoon to just make it that much cooler. And, yeah. um, and that's one of the things that's fun about working at Hallmark is that when you're working with licensed properties and you've got a, you know, a, a pretty deep bench when it comes to uh, you know, hundreds of creative people working there at once, you're always going to find a fan of something. Yeah. And they will send out letters like, "Hey, we're gonna we're thinking about developing this license or that license, and we would love to talk to people who dig it and tell us why and what's cool about it." Um, 
like I said um, before we started our conversation, I'm uh, working on uh, greeting cards right now for Duck Dynasty, uh, the A&E uh, reality show about the uh, Louisiana family who is, uh, you know, they're multi, they have a multi-million dollar business built out of uh, uh, duck calls, handmade duck calls. Yep. And and it's, I knew nothing about it going in. On Tuesday, um, I said, I... I've never even seen an episode. I don't take that back on Monday. And uh, they said, well, we'll fix that. And we sat right there in the meeting and watched two episodes. And uh, now I'm writing greeting cards for them. So it's uh, just, they they threw me at it because they know that I'm just geeky enough that I'll jump in and learn about a, a these characters and be able to write for them. Yeah. And that's what's, that's what's a lot of fun. As you've been mentioning frequently, fans and pop culture it brings us back to the biggest expressions of all that, the cons. The, con- uh, the conventions have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And awesomer and awesomer. And awesomer and awesomer. And we know that you often attend. I'm trying to think of what would be the, the best metaphor that one would use for San Diego Comic-Con. The because Titan. The Titan, the king, the king the, and queen. The, the, the all-consuming blob. Yeah, Exactly. So tell us a little bit about Comic Con, and you were just there this year. And we'll try I, to contain I, our I've hates. Been, as we actually, I've been I've I've attended seven of the last eight. If I'm doing the math right, fabulous. And uh, um, and and I will tell you this, and this is I mean, and I and I um, say this with with all sincerity. I would not be able to go if I was not attached to the Hallmark team and going as a worker because, yeah. frankly, it is a very expensive undertaking. Um, I think there are some people when um, when they find out just how much um, that is involved. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, our the hotel I was in was a it was a nice hotel, but certainly not. You know, I mean, it was it was a uh, um, it was it was a Hyatt, um, three hundred bucks a night. And, you know, so, so, yeah, so, so, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, hotel alone for the six days I was there is close to $2,000 and, and, you know, and then you got air airfare, then you got uh, uh, the ticket to get in and then you got, you know, your food. And then uh, if anything's left, you want to spend some money on stuff to bring home. I mean, it's, it is an expensive proposition. Did you see Um, Misha Collins running around? (laughs) I did not. Um, (laughs) My... My celebrity sightings this year uh, were very limited because, again, um, you know, my convention experience is like looking through a pinhole in a shoebox because I am there to to work as a vendor. Um, I don't get to go to panels. Um, I do walk the convention floor sometimes, but not often. Generally, I'm there from 8.30 in the morning to 7.30 at night. Um, in our booth, um, you know, I mean, explaining the products that we've brought to show and, uh, uh, talking to the people that come in that are interested in learning about Hallmark and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm there to work. So, um, now my daughter has gone with me for the last three years and she is, you know, I mean, we'll get to explore a little bit more, but, uh, she usually comes to volunteer to work as well. So, um, yeah, our, the uh, closest brush with greatness that we had in the booth that I can remember um, the, uh, well, I mean, we had actually this year at, 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 our Hallmark booth for the first time, we had two, uh, celebrities come in and sign autographs on a regular, on a regular schedule. Uh, we had deep Roy, 
um, okay. who is uh, um, in the Star Trek world is known for um, playing Keenzer in the last two uh, Star Trek movies, the uh, little green faced guy that hangs out with Scotty. Yeah. Um, he also played all the Oompa Loompas in Tim Burton's uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, and but he was there because his 30th anniversary of Return of the Jedi, and he played Droopy McCool, who was a member of the Max Rebo band, played uh, for Jabba the Hutt. Oh. Wow, that is a deep uh, cut. I have that is indeed. <laughs> uh, and we also had Stephen Costantino, who uh, played a uh, Gamorrean guard uh, in Return of the Jedi, um, one of the big green pig guards. Oh, okay. And um, and so they were signing, um, you know, pictures at our booth and stuff. It was a lot of fun. And supposedly, um, the guy from Scrubs, Zach Branf. Yeah. How do you say his name? Uh, Braff? I don't know. Something like that. He came into our booth, I guess, wearing a, uh, a pretty low-rent Batman mask. And <laughs> one of our workers recognized his voice when he spoke. <laughs> and, hey, that sounds like that. And then I guess he turned and looked at her and and booked it out of there. <laughs> it can get really crowded. There's 130,000 people, they say, at any given time there. And a lot of them are in panel discussions, but a lot of them are on the convention floor looking for free things, looking to buy exclusive products, just looking to spend money or get autographs or, yep. or whatever. And it, it can get pretty complicated, but it's so a lot of fun. So you were there, but you didn't get to see Tom Hiddleston do a Velociraptor impression. I saw it like the majority of people saw it, which was on YouTube. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, but here's the thing is that, uh, you know, also remember that, uh, you know, if, if there is a scheduled panel in the biggest room that Comic-Con can accommodate um, in fans, then you're going to get, I think it's five or 6,000 people. And if there are, let's say it's 6,000 if there are 120,000 people at the convention, if I'm doing my math, that's, um, you know, I mean, uh, it's uh, 5%. So that means that one out of 20 people at Comic-Con got a chance to see that live. <laughs> and, um, oh, no. and, and so it's, so it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty, uh, it, it can be a pretty uh, slim margin when it comes to uh, um, uh you know, to, to what it is you actually get to experience, but, yeah. uh, but, it's, but you can't, you can't deny the energy. I would love to go someday, but I can't imagine going unless I was lucky enough to be there as the guest of a, of a publisher or something. You yes. know, like, like you said, I, I can't imagine being able to go just on my own because it just seems too overwhelming in so many ways, both financially. Unless and, we move to LA. And <laughs> unless, well, even that's, even that's a trip because it's in San Diego and San Diego. Un, yeah. Unless we live. move to San Diego. Un, unless I win the lottery is what you're well, saying. I'm, you know, I'm telling you that's, unless that's, I go to college in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. But even then, <laughs> but even then, and but that's the thing is that, you know, I mean, if I spent the money to, um, to you know, just for me and Colleen to go, uh, you know, if we if I paid for both our airfare, if I paid for a hotel room for both of us, um, you know, the one break that I get is that they still allow free registrations for professionals, and you can take a guest. So I got, I, you know, I can get her and myself in for free. Um, but with food and anything else, I'm telling you, it's close to a semester of college. Yeah, it's yeah. and 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 as 
you, I'm sure, are starting to do, as I absolutely am doing, I balance everything against it. I was like, okay, uh, I could buy this, but it's half a credit hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's where I'll be for the next three or four years. You were just out at uh, Star Trek Vegas convention. Tell us a little bit about what, what happened there. I was. There. Um, I, and that was, that was a treat because I got a chance to meet uh, um, uh, people. Well, whenever I'm, 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 I'm given an opportunity to, to go around and, uh, you know, to places outside of Kansas City, um, it's always fun to meet fans from all walks of life. And yeah. this being the official Star Trek convention, you know, the, I mean, Vegas is kind of, you know, the, uh, you know, the Mecca to which we all turn apparently. Um, the, uh, uh, it's, it was, it was uh, the level of costumes, the level of engagement of people for Star Trek in all forms mm -hmm. at that convention is much higher than any other convention you're going to go to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so if this is something that you have a real passion for, not just to talk about yourself, but just to meet people who are in it, the, the level of costuming is amazing uh, and, and very obscure. I mean, like they had a couple for, that were the villains from Cat's Paw. It's like, who thinks <laughs> wow. that up? You yeah. know, there's a guy who had Nomad um, as, a, as an outfit. Uh, you know, there's just all, so, all sorts of awesome things. Um, but it was, yeah, it was so great to get a chance to, to meet people and creation entertainment, who is the, uh, uh showrunner, um, has the ability to bring numerous, uh, uh, people who are uh, involved in the series. I got a chance to meet with uh, Mike and Denise Okuda who have yep. been uh, creative consultants and, uh, and, and wonderful imaginations for Star Trek for, for decades. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone from the, uh, you know, from William Shatner and the other captains all the way down through, um, you know, just, uh, contributors to the show, uh, or even contributors to fandom. And yeah. it's, it was, it's a great experience and it's absolutely worth, uh, uh checking out if that's something that you want to do. You were there as a Star Trek writer. Not yes. as a Hallmark uh, well, guy. Yes and no. I mean, Dayton and I went out under our own steam in the sense that uh, you know we covered our costs. Yeah. But we also were invited by a podcast called the G and T Show. Yep. Um, they actually arranged for us to have tickets to be able to get into the convention, so we could do signings at their booth oh, and uh, speak fans there. So it was a very yeah. kind gesture uh, on the part of uh, of Nick and Terry, the yep. hosts of the G and T Show. We've we've done the G and T Show. Yeah. The kid and I. Uh, sometimes when, if, if Terry's not there, then we, uh, guest host. Wow. With, sometimes uh, with I Nick. leave sleepovers to do the show and then go back. Yeah. <laughs> nice. It was, and they're very enthusiastic, very fun people. It was, it was very flattering to get the opportunity to, uh, to join them. Well, and then the big thing this year was that Nick proposed... He did. I was at there at the convention on, yeah, right on the bridge on the, on the bridge of the, of the bridge D. Enterprise D. It was a very fun moment to share with him. Did you have any other um, questions? Any comments? Do you listen to Welcome to Night Vale? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's it? it's a podcast. It's like if H.P. Lovecraft and Neil Gaiman set up a town on The Sims and just let it run for years. <laughs> oh wow. I have I have not heard that. I I I must admit that I have a uh, passing familiarity with Mr. Lovecraft's work and I have even less of a familiarity with Mr. Gaiman's work. It's really funny. It's just dark and uh slightly creepy until you get used to it and then you just laugh at all the really creepy things that uh the host says. It's and... supposedly broadcast out of this like community radio in a really small town called Nightvale. 
Nice. It's Where fantastic. very strange things happen. Where very strange, strange and things, things happen. happen. It's like like Erie, Indiana. Yes. <laughs> You've probably never seen. Have you ever seen Erie, Indiana? I don't think so. Well, you'll have to check it out. It's I'm on. Part of it. I believe it's on Hulu. So you could. Uh, I have to finish Doogie Hauser first. <laughs> Are you yeah. watching Doogie Hauser? Yeah. Doogie Love Doogie Hauser. Uh, Vinny is one of the best characters ever been created for TV. The kid can't stand him. He's you mean. can't stand Vinny? <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm in like the first season and he was trying to convince Doogie to have like a party while his parents were gone. And well, he's yeah. like, you have to build up your reputation. All the kids at school call you Dr. Geek. And he kept like saying, and I was like, why would you say that? <laughs> That's it's, so it's, awful. It's conflict. It's conflict. Vinny I, is Eddie Haskell. And, well, and, and I, well, that's true. I told her that I think that he will grow on her. But I, I'm confident he will. He does. I mean, yeah, he does do a lot of uh, insensitive things to his best friend. Yeah. But I think yes. it's very real. I think it's a very real kind of character. Yes. yes. Well, and, and remember, remember that Vinny was the person who was with Doogie through his cancer. I mean, Vinny shaved his head. When, when, you know, I mean, that's how they, that's, that's where the basis of their friendship is. They're, they're, they're like brothers. I mean, yeah. you know, Doogie, when Doogie was sick, Vinny was the kid who was there the whole time. So. Yeah. I, I like their friendship. I just don't like how Vinny he, he acts can be, uh, sometimes. He can be annoying. Yeah. yeah. Cause I don't like the girl. Who's the girl? Um, Wanda? Yeah. Is Wanda is Doogie's girlfriend. girlfriend. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not. I never. She never grew on me. <laughs> and I can't remember. It was funny. I can't remember it very well. Um, it was fun though. I watched an episode with her last night, and it happened to be an episode that Nana Visitor was. A it was guest so on. crazy. Yeah. So she was playing uh, Charmaine, a big pop singer. Yeah. Who, uh, I remember. And so that was pretty that fun was so to funny. see that. Yeah. I was like I love- sitting on the couch eating mac and cheese. Nana visitor <laughs> guest stars. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, um, and the uh, uh, when it ran originally on prime time, it was uh, ABC was experimenting with half hour dramas or comedy dramas because there's no laugh track and stuff. And it was and it was doubled up with another show um, about uh, a private investigator that John Ritter starred in called Hooperman. Oh, and I if you ever get a chance to watch Hooperman, that. I loved it. Hooperman was so good. Yeah, it was great. And then what, did it only last like a season or two? Uh-huh. And, you know, Maybe one of those things. Two. Maybe two, but I just remember one. Yeah, that was his best work. That, that was just... I agree. You know, really... I agree that, and, and a movie him... that he did, a very obscure movie, if you ever get a chance to watch it. Actually, he was in two obscure movies that I loved. Um, I love Americathon. Um, which it was written by uh, um, uh, Proctor and Bergman from uh, Firesign Theater about mm-hmm. uh, uh, America going broke and having to have a telethon to jumpstart its budget when uh, Native Americans call back their loan to the government and want to take over the country. It's very <laughs> weird, but it's very prescient. Uh, Harvey Korman is the uh, MC oh, of the of Marathon. And it's and it's great. And the other movie he was in uh, was with a woman named Ann Archer, and it's called Hero at Large. Yeah. And there was a uh, in the movie there was a superhero movie called Captain Avenger, and they would hire uh, actors to show up in the Captain Avenger outfit at the movies to um, uh, you know to promote it. And uh, John Ritter um, happened to do something heroic 
while he was wearing the Captain Avenger outfit, and uh, and he decided that he was going to become a superhero. And it's it's actually it's very cute and very fun if you get a chance to watch. It. It's called Hero at Large. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm very happy to be. It was a lot of fun. It's kind of a rambling mess on my end. I hope you can edit it all out. That's uh, <laughs> we uh, we like rambling. Yeah, here. rambling is good. That's what we do. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 13, Lord of the Geeks. We'll welcome guest Paul Simpson, writer and editor of many geeky things, including the upcoming Middle Earth Envisioned, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings on screen, on stage, and beyond, co-authored with Brian J. Robb. That'll be published this fall, as well as on my Christmas list. Please email questions for us or our guest to the geeks at generationsgeek.com. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a crowded pantry in Bag End. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. And please follow Generations Geek on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and check out our website at generationsgeek.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.